Today's scripture comes from Psalm 119, verses 145 to 152. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you now for your continued mercy and grace. Even when we find ourselves unable to be faithful to you, you are always faithful to us. And you're always available to us in prayer, in communion, in the word. God, we thank you that you are so faithful, that far extends the faithfulness of the generations of your people since the beginning. God, how could we ever pay back all that you have done to us? We are forever indebted to you. And that is something that we would never want to change. For we know that when we are indebted to you, you are always there for us. God, would you continue to watch over us as we seek to be faithful people living in this world as your ambassadors. Father, as we deal with trials and temptations, as we deal with setbacks and failures, as we deal with all the the disappointments and the heartaches of life, give us the enduring grace that we need to persevere so that we know that our advancement of your kingdom is not dependent upon our success, but it's already been succeedingly won through the work of your son, Jesus. Help us to remember these things as we seek to faithfully represent him throughout our lives. We ask now that you would be with us as we sit at your feet, as we now have laid our burdens at your feet. Help us now to be fully present and attentive to your preached word today. And we ask finally, would you please bless the message in spite of the messenger who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, folks. Well, for the past few weeks, since the beginning of the new year, we started our annual sermon series that we do every year entitled Grow Up. And the reason why we go through this series every single year is because we firmly believe that the mission of this church and hence what should be the mission of every church is to bless the world or the way that we put it here, bless the world through the gospel. Furthermore, we believe that the way that the church is able to fulfill this mission of blessing the world is when the individual members that make up the church, all of you in here, grow in the faith, grow in the gospel, spiritually mature. Because when you spiritually mature, when you grow up, you embody the characteristics of Jesus. And that right there is the crux. That is the heart of the matter in terms of being a blessing to the world. You see, we believe the more you become like Jesus, the more blessed this world is going to be. Because if there is anyone who loves this world, it's the person who created it, who also happens to be the same person who suffered and died for it. See, that is why it's so important for us to be like Jesus, because Jesus loves this world. Jesus is for this world. He wants this world to flourish, and he's called us to be like him so that we would participate in this great work of blessing and flourishing the world. And so for the past few weeks, we look at the various characteristics of what we believe that 
maturity looks like. First, we talked about what it means to be a godly person. How through your personal holiness, you grow in such a way that you become a servant to those around you. How your holiness enables you to become a holier for thou Christian rather than an arrogant, pompous, holier than thou Christian. Then we talked about the importance of how the gospel changes us to become relationally competent. How the gospel changes us from the inside out to where we're able to relate to people who are different, unlike us, who is the stranger, and relate to them in a way that is right and good. Then during the retreat weekend, our guest speaker, Pastor Only, talked to us about wisdom, right, and how wisdom is able to help us navigate through some of the darkest moments of life, even through suffering, so that as we come through suffering, we don't become bitter people, we become better people. Then we talked about the importance of being universally church committed, that is being committed to the expansion of the church, which works through the work of evangelism, how we are to share our faith with other people. Then... A couple weeks ago, we talked about the importance of being outwardly compassionate, how being concerned for the poor, being concerned for the hungry, for the forgotten, for the oppressed, that's not something that should be an interest for just a select minority in the church. No, it should be the central core desire of every single Christian who desires to please God. Well, today, we come to the final characteristic, which is known as prayerful. What I want to show you today is one of the ways that we bless this world as followers of Jesus is when we cultivate and develop a habitual prayerful life, okay, prayerful life. Now, for many of you who grew up going to church, especially a church like this, a Korean church, prayer is one of those things that's very familiar to you, and yet it's also very foreign at the same time. And what I mean by that is you grew up going to church surrounded by people who's always praying all the time, maybe early morning prayer or 20-minute or prayer sessions that you do at church services, or you've heard tons of sermons and went through tons of Bible studies that talk about the importance of prayer and why you need to pray. Maybe you've been surrounded by youth group teachers or, or, or parents who are always telling you, you need to pray about it, pray, 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 pray. And yet, with all that familiarity, I I'm willing to bet that if I have pressed you with a series of questions of, say, like why prayer is important, why it's relevant to you as a follower of Jesus, how it enables you to bless the world, I am willing to bet that many, if not all of you, will not be able to answer those questions. Well, it's my hope today that as we finish this series and especially this message, you'll come away not only with a better understanding of the answers to those questions, but that you will be compelled to develop a profound, prayerful life. So... With that said, three things I want to share with you today. First, I want to talk about the ongoing pain of the Christian life. The ongoing pain of the Christian life. Number two, I want to talk about the damage caused by this ongoing pain. And finally, I want to talk about how prayer is able to heal that damage. The ongoing pain of the Christian life, uh, the danger caused by the ongoing pain, and finally, uh, how prayer is able to heal that damage. Let me just grab a sip of water here. Okay, so let's begin. <clears throat> First, the ongoing pain of the Christian life. Now, our passage today, Psalm 119, is one of the most famous passages in the Bible. And the reason why it's so famous is because it happens to be the longest chapter in the Bible. For those of you in youth group, if you want to do a, a you know, Bible trivia and ask, what's the longest chapter in the Bible? I just gave you the answer. The longest chapter in the whole Bible is Psalm 119. Weighing in at 176 verses, this is one of the most deepest and most profound passages of Scripture that you could ever find. And in our portion of Scripture today, we're focusing on verses 145 to 152, right? Because it's a section that focuses on prayer. So with that in mind, let's skip down to the middle of our passage and read verse 150, which reads this. 
They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. Now, as we can see from this verse, the author of this psalm has enemies. This person has people in his life who wants to humiliate him, who wants to harm him, maybe even kill him. Okay? And notice how he uses the third person plural, they, to refer to his enemies. What does that tell us? It tells us that this guy has a lot of enemies, okay? Not just a handful of scattered enemies here and there, but a lot of enemies. He has a whole collective of enemies going against him. Now, when a person has a lot of enemies, it's very easy to assume that perhaps this person must have done something to deserve the number of enemies that he's had, right? Maybe we think, oh, maybe he did some huge blunder. Maybe he did a huge wrong. Maybe he made an egregious mistake to where he's attracting all these haters in his life. Because isn't that what we typically assume in our day and age? If somebody today has a lot of enemies to where they have to refer to them as a collective whole, they, well, then the problem must be the person who's being hated on, not the haters. I mean, it's one thing to have a select, scattered individuals who hate you throughout your life. That's kind of normal. But to have an entire group of people who is out to get you, that comes across as a little shady. We must think, hey, what did you do? To where you have all these people hate you. I mean, all these people can't be crazy to where they all agree to hate you like this. You must have done something wrong. You must be the problem. You must be the reason why these people hate you so much. Here's the question. Why do we reason like that? Why do we make that kind of an assumption? Don't we make that assumption because we make another assumption? Namely, that it's not normal to have a lot of haters in your life. It's not normal to have a lot of enemies. We just assume that if you're a normal standout person, minding your own business, doing your thing, making your contribution to society, no one would ever bother you. No one would ever dislike you. No one would ever go out of their way to harm you or to humiliate you or maybe even try to kill you. That's our assumption, right? We just assume that if you just do what you got to do and, in fact, maybe even help other people, No one is going to hate on you, you know, because to have a a massive collective that is against you to persecute you, that's an anomaly. That's not the norm. That's an assumption we make. But let me ask you, is that a correct assumption to make? Is it right to assume that if you're just doing your thing, you're not going to have a lot of people not like you? Well, listen to the words of Jesus, because I think he has an interesting perspective on this matter. This is what he says in John chapter 18. Starting in verse 18, he says this. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally, they will persecute you. Here, Jesus states clearly that if you follow him, You will, not may, you will attract haters in your life. If you seek to live your life in accordance to how Jesus lived his life, you will have enemies. You will. And what kind of life does Jesus want us to imitate when it came to his life? What kind of life does he call us to live? The mission statement behind me says it. To bless the world. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? To follow Jesus means to follow his example by seeking to bless the people of the world who will respond to your attempt to bless them with hateful persecution. Now, some of you are hearing that and you're like, that makes no sense. Why would the world 
respond with hatred and persecution when we're trying to bless them, when we're trying to be kind and serve them. That makes no sense, right? How, in fact, how could anyone find Jesus offensive? Why would they hate Jesus? Especially when you read in the Bible how he did such wonderful things like heal the sick, feed the hungry, loved orphans and widows. How could the people that he served like this end up crucifying him and being so cruel and vicious? What kind of person would be offended by the things that Jesus did? And the answer is nobody. Nobody would be offended at what Jesus did, especially when you consider things that he did that were wonderful, like feeding hungry people, healing sick people. But everyone would be offended when they find out why he did those things. People won't be offended by what Jesus did, but they would be offended as to why he did those things. Listen to what Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark, starting in verse Excuse me, starting in chapter 2, starting in verses 16 to 17. He says this, and he's talking to a bunch of religious leaders who are upset at him because he's eating with a bunch of, like, messed up people in society. He says this, but when the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Now, did you catch that little, you know, backhanded insult there that he made against the religious leaders? Did you guys notice that? Right? When he made this comment, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous. What is Jesus saying to them by making this backward saying? He's saying, you guys think you're so good. You guys think you're so morally upright. You think you're so pure when in fact you're just as evil, just as selfish, just as perverted as these people that I'm having dinner with. Right? See, and that right there is why people did not like Jesus. Even though he did wonderful things, when they dig a little deeper as to why he did these things, they get upset. You see, Jesus did a lot of good in this world. He did. But part of the reason why he did this good was to teach all of us is that no one here, no one ever is as good as he was or will ever be as good as he was. And the only reasons Christians are able to follow his example is because they first acknowledge what? That they're sick, that they're broken, that they're evil, that they're perverted. They first acknowledge their innate inability to be as good as Jesus, and therefore the only reason they can be good like him is because his power is at work within them. Not because of any innate power they have in themselves. They have no power. It's only because Jesus is mercifully at work in them that they're able to do the work of blessings in the world. That is the underlying subtext behind all that we do as Christians in this world. All the good that we do as followers of Jesus does not originate in us. It does not display how good we are. Rather, it displays how good God is to work with such messed up, selfish people like all of us. That is the underlying subtext that no one is good like him. This is what offends people about Jesus. This is what offends people about his followers. This is sometimes known as the offensiveness of the gospel. Listen to how one Christian author, David Mathis, explains it because I think he does a great job in clarifying all this for us. Listen to what he says, quote, Our message is not, you can do it. It's not you're good enough, smart enough, and people like you. What we preach is that you are a glorious creature gone tragically bad, that you have rebelled against the God who made you, but that he did the most difficult thing imaginable to win you back and lavish you with his eternal goodness. It is wondrously good news, but unavoidable is the offense, that insulting supposition, that bad news that sets up the good. Did you catch it? 
you've gone tragically bad. You're a foolhardy rebel against the most powerful person in the universe. There's nothing you can do to save yourself, earn God's favor, or get yourself out of the cosmic pit you're in, the pit you dug and can't climb out of. The offense is that the magnitude of God's solution, the slaughter of his own son, shows the magnitude of our wickedness and frailty and utter inability. Yes, the gospel says you're more love than you could ever have dreamed. But as Jack Miller and Tim Keller have noted, at the same time, it says you're more sinful than you ever imagined. And that is repugnant to the natural palate. When the people of the world find out why you're seeking to bless the world, which is to promote the gospel. The same gospel that says that God loves them, even though they are nasty, disgusting, perverted sinners. People are going to hear that, and they're not going to focus on the fact that God loves them. They're going to focus on the underlying insult that makes God's love so amazing. They're going to think, you just called me a disgusting, perverted sinner, and they're going to get angry, they're going to get offended, and they're going to get defensive, and therefore they're going to persecute you. And it's this persecution from the world... That is the ongoing pain of the Christian who seeks to live his life in accordance to Jesus' life. When you seek to follow the example of Jesus, while you seek to bless the world, to promote the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, the world is going to respond with anger, with judgment, with persecution. Virtually identical to the ongoing pain of the psalmist in our passage. And so we're left with this question. What happens to you? When you're constantly being being bombarded with this kind of persecution. What effect does this have on you? What damage does this cause? When you're living in the world, trying to live like Jesus, and the world reacts with nothing but judgment, hatred, and condemnation. The answer leads me to my next point. The damage caused by this ongoing pain. If a person is being constantly criticized, constantly insulted, constantly villainized, what happens to that person? What effect does that leave a person, especially internally, as they're always being the recipient of such hate and such judgment and condemnation? What happens? Well, our passage tells us what happens in verses 147 and 148. Let's read it again. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. You might have noticed that very odd phrase that says, watches of the night. What is that phrase, watches of the night? Well, it's actually an ancient military phrase that refers to time slots where soldiers would stay up all night to guard the city while everyone else was asleep, right? In the military today, they call it night watch. In the Old Testament, the watches of the night ranged from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. and 2 a.m., to sunrise. And when you combine this fact with the fact that the author in verse 147 says that he rises before the dawn to cry for help, what does this tell us about this guy? What's his problem? He can't sleep, right? He's up all night. Why is he not sleeping? The same reason why a soldier can't sleep when he's doing the night watch, because it's not safe. He has to be on guard. He doesn't feel safe enough to be at peace, to be at rest. He is up all night. Do you know when most people are confronted with all the things that bother them in their life? What time of day is it usually when most people are most aware of all the issues, all the problems, all the struggles that they have in their life? Isn't it bedtime, right? Bedtime when you no longer have to work. 
You no longer have to deal with crying kids. You no longer have to deal with catching up on your favorite afternoon show or whatever show you like to watch. It's when all is quiet, all the distractions are gone, and now it's just you alone on that bed. And now all the things that you've been trying to avoid through your work, through your relationships, through your activities are no longer avoidable. You are confronted with all the problems and struggles in your life in the night watch hours. Am I right? And if what I said in my first point is true, that as followers of Jesus, if you seek to follow Jesus the way that you're called to, that means you will suffer ongoing pain of persecution from the world. What do you imagine is going to be the thing that you're going to be thinking about the most as you're lying in bed? You're going to be thinking about how much this world hates you like it hated Jesus. Or if I could put it this way, you're going to be constantly hearing the message of hate that the world is throwing at you, the same message of hate that it threw at Jesus. Here's the question. What is this message of hate that the world threw at Jesus? Well, I can think of no better place to look than at the moment when the world's hatred of Jesus was at its apex, which is what? The cross. If you read the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus, there you can actually read the literal message of hate that they were hurling at Jesus as he was dying on the cross. Here's one message that they were hurling at Jesus. Matthew 27, verse 42 to 44. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he is the king of Israel, is he? Well, let him come down from the cross right now and we will believe in him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. Notice what the haters of Jesus are saying to him as he's dying on the cross. Notice they are not saying, Jesus, we hate you. We think you suck. We think you're disgusting. They're not saying that. What are they saying? God hates you, Jesus. God is disgusted with you, Jesus. God has abandoned you, Jesus. That's essentially what they're saying when they say in verse 43, he trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. You see what they're doing? They're mocking Jesus using his own words against him because all throughout his public ministry, he would say every now and then, I am God's beloved. I am the son. The father loves me. I am in the father. He is in me. Basically saying, God loves me. And they're now repeating that, 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 that statement to him in a mocking way to show, ironically, that God must not love him because he's still on the cross. Hey, if your God loves you so much, why is he not helping you out? Why are you still dying there? Right? As a humiliated, naked, disgusting criminal, embarrassing yourself. No, God doesn't love you, Jesus. God hates you. Sure enough, that is the same message that the world throws at us as Christians when we seek to follow Jesus' example. See, when the world conveys its message of hate towards us as followers of Jesus, right, they don't say, we hate you, Christian. We think you're disgusting, Christian. We think you're despicable, Christian. No, they say rather, God hates you, Christian. He can't stand you, Christian. He can't put up with the way that you think, the way that you behave, the way that you believe in him. God just hates you. You know, King David in the Old Testament was constantly being thrown this hate speech at him all the time by his persecutors. Which is why some people think that Psalm 119 was actually written by David. They're not sure, but they think he might have written it. Excuse me. But one psalm they do know for sure that he wrote is Psalm 71. Listen to what he says some of these haters are saying to him, starting in verse 10. For my enemies are whispering against me. They are plotting together to kill me, for they say, what? God has abandoned him. 
Let's go and get him, for no one will help him now. All throughout his life, when David was trying to run away from his haters and avoid being persecuted by them, you know what accusation they were constantly throwing at him? God hates you. Man after God's own heart. Who are you kidding? God hates you. God has abandoned you. When you choose to be like Jesus in this world, you will receive the same message of hate that Jesus received as he was dying on the cross. The same message that David had as he was fleeing from his enemies. God hates you. God hates you. God hates you. Now, of course, the world won't literally say God hates you, right? Because they probably don't believe in God. But they will say a message to you that will portray you as someone who is so despicable and so foul to where you will interpret it as if God hates you. For example, the world may say something like, you Christians, you are so narrow-minded. You are so intolerant. You are so homophobic. You are so bigoted. You're so on the wrong side of history. History. You are so Republican. Right? As an aside, not to say there's anything wrong with being in the Republican Party. Right? As you keep hearing these messages to where you eventually internalize them, you'll start to wonder, am I really a bigot? Am I being too narrow-minded here? Am I being a little bit too serious with my Christianity to where it's making me into a bully, a homophobe, a Republican? Am I being the kind of person that is no good for the people of this world? And as a result, am I being the kind of person that God would hate and want nothing to do with? These are the eventual concerns that will, not may, but will come into your mind as you seek to be like Jesus in this world you will generally start to doubt whether or not the faith that you are trying to live out is actually a faith that blesses the world because instead you will be confronted with a message that says, your faith is toxic to this world. You need to lighten up with this Christianity. You are becoming a person that is no good for this world. And that message can cause indescribable, incredible damage to you and to your faith to where you will be tempted to not make living like Jesus a priority. Instead, you'll probably think to yourself, you know, I'll be a Christian, but I'm not going to be one of those Christians, right? Like my sister or my cousin or my uncle and their family. You know, I'm a Christian, yes, but I'm not going to be like those Christians who take it to the extreme, who are too serious. Brothers and sisters, if that's where you're at, to where you're being tempted to think that I don't want to portray myself in a way that is just vicious and cruel, right? I urge you, don't fall into the trap of just lightening and making more shallow and superficial and lukewarm your faith. Instead of compromising yourself in that way, I urge you to do something else. Pray. Pray. Why prayer? Why is prayer so important? Well, the answer leads me to my next point, my final point, how prayer is able to heal the damage. Let's read again verses 146 to 148. The author says, I call to you, save me that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watch of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Notice what the author of this psalm is doing in in light of the damage that he's accruing while he's living in this world. What is he doing? Verse 146, he calls out to God. Verse 147, he cries out to help, for help. Whenever you see those phrases in the Bible, it's always referring to what? Prayer. This man is praying. What does this tell us? It tells us this. Whenever you feel like you are no good for the world because your faith is making you such a toxic person, because of the world constantly hating on you, 
Scripture says you are to pray. Why? What's so magical about prayer? What's so healing about prayer? Well, in order to answer that question, you have to look at the other thing this guy does besides praying. What does he do besides praying? Verse 146, I observe your testimonies. I hope in your words. Verse 148, I meditate on your promise. What is this guy doing aside from praying? He's reading Scripture, right? He's meditating on Scripture. He's memorizing Scripture. He's studying Scripture. What do we need to take away from all this? Here's what we need to take away. If you want your prayers to be effective, if you want your prayers to have power, which in this instance involves healing power, you need to be reading and studying and meditating on Scripture. You know, some people will say, you know, I don't like to read the Bible. That's not really my thing. My thing is prayer. I love to pray. Pray, I can do do eight hours of praying, but I can barely do five minutes of Bible reading. If that is you... Be very, very careful because I would venture to guess that you're not praying to God. You're praying to a projection of a person that you wish was in your life but isn't, like maybe a future husband, future wife. And you'll probably talk to God like he's some romantic, you know, person out there that you wish you could have in your life. No. If you don't read scripture and you pray, your picture of God will be colored more by what you watch on TV, right, or from the weird theology you learned, you know, growing up in churches that didn't teach you properly, and you're going to have a misperceived perception of God, and your prayers are not going to be effective. Effective prayer is saturated, it's empowered, it's informed by Scripture, okay? Scripture is so necessary, especially if you want your prayers to be healing. Now you're thinking, why why is that? What is it about scripture that enables my prayer to heal me when I'm suffering damage living in this world that hates me so much? Well, I want to read to you a quote from a pastor named Robin uh, Boisvert. Uh, And this is what he says about the Bible. And I think it's very helpful. He says this, the Bible is God's unique revelation to man. It tells us truth we could never find in any other source, such as how the world began, what happens after we die, and so on. It also tells us some things we would never have wanted to find out. We are born in sin. We're in need of redemption, and we're unable to please God by ourselves. Someone has once remarked that the Bible must be the word of God because man would never write anything so disapproving of himself. The Bible does not flatter us, nor does it teach, as virtually every other religion does, that man can perfect himself. In fact, Scripture is pessimistic in the extreme regarding man's innate ability to be a good and decent person. What is this guy saying about the Bible? He's saying the Bible, when you study it, will teach you one thing about you. And that is you're a terrible person, that you suck, right? Now you're hearing that and you're like, wait a minute. (laughs) If the world tells me that I suck and that, you know, God should hate me, and if I read the Bible that says I suck even more, how is that going to make me feel better? How is that going to bring healing to my prayer, healing power to my prayer? Well, think about it. It makes total sense. When you feel damaged because of the ridicule, the criticism, the condemnation you get from the world, the best thing you can do to get over it is realize that you're much more worse than what the world says about you. Like, hmm, how so? Why? Because when you realize that you're actually worse than what your worst hater on earth says about you, then you realize that you're much more healed because of what the gospel says about you. The Bible says that apart from Jesus, we are bad. We are evil. We are the worst of the worst, right? 
I mean, the diagnosis it gives us is so much darker, so much bleaker than what your worst critic will say to you on earth. But the Bible also says because of what Jesus has done on the cross, all that is wrong with you, all that is bad about you has been completely undermined. It's gone. Right? Think about it. If you have your worst problem solved, all the other problems that are less problematic has also been solved as well. Because, you see, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all of your sins. You know, when a person comes up to you and criticizes you, Try this out next time. If someone comes up to you and says, man, you are so arrogant and judgmental, right? You, you're disgusting. You know what you can say? Don't say, leave me alone or, or you're worse too. That's pretty funny but stupid to say. You know what you should say? It's like, you know you what? You're right. In fact, you don't even know half of it. I'm actually worse than what you think. But you know what? God has forgiven me of everything. I am completely free. I am completely justified. I am completely forgiven. So whatever criticism that you have of me is not going to tear me down. Actually, I can hear you out. And if there's any truth in it, I can actually learn from it and grow from it to where I won't be so consumed by my wounded pride because I have been set free. The gospel frees you from not being torn down by criticism. That is the gospel. The gospel tells us that God loves you so much, he was willing to pay the penalty for all the offenses you've caused him. He was willing to pay for all the sins that would made him hate you so much. So that instead of you getting what you deserve, which is the ultimate damage, which is utter separation from God, he suffered it for you on the cross. That is how you begin to find healing as you study the gospel only found in Scripture, Christian Scripture. The more you meditate on the fact that you've been completely redeemed means there's no new things that anyone can dig up on you. It's all old news that's over and done with. Water under the bridge. Now, some of you here are investigating Christianity. You're like, well, pastor, I hear what you're saying, but what about what you brought up in your first point? You know, the gospel is pretty offensive to me. You say that, you know, God loves me, but that love comes at a cost. I first have to acknowledge that I'm messed up and I'm evil and perverted and then I'm disgusting. If you're here today investigating Christianity and that's what you're thinking, I'd like for you to look at it in a different way. I'd like for you to consider it in this way. The gospel may seem offensive to you, but try to look at it from God's standpoint. If you compared to the offense that you're feeling right now, and you compared it to the actual offense that God had to endure in order to offer you the gospel, let me ask you, who's really the more offended person? Because what offense did Jesus have to suffer to be our substitute savior? He had to suffer the offense of being treated as if he was the most evil, the most perverted, the most selfish, the most cold-blooded person in the history of mankind, even though he was the most innocent, even though he was the most righteous, even though he was the most pure person that ever walked on this earth and will ever walk on this earth. Who is receiving the greater offense? And yet Jesus gladly accepted that for you so that you would no longer be defined by those things that you're so offended by because Jesus paid it all. All those things that the gospel says about you, God says, I'm willing to forgive and to forget. And not only that, I'm willing to change you to where you're no longer those things. Let me ask you, friend, who really is the greater offended party? You God. The gospel teaches us 
not to fixate on what the gospel says about our condition, but to focus on God's love for us in spite of that condition. Don't major on the minors and minor on the majors. The major of the gospel is in Christ, you are fully pardoned, fully forgiven, fully loved, and fully accepted. See, when you understand that, you're not going to be offended by the gospel. In fact, you will respond differently. You will respond with gratitude. You won't respond with scorn, but with joy. You won't respond with a puffed-up, arrogant spirit, but rather with a broken and contrite spirit. And when you get that spirit, then and only then will you be able to tap into the healing power of prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is a response of confidence that we have when we have less confidence in ourselves and more confidence in God's transforming, forgiving love. Let me say that again. Prayer is a response of confidence that we have when we have less confidence in ourselves and greater confidence in God's forgiving and transforming love for us. The less confidence you have in yourself to be a good person while at the same time having greater confidence in God's love for you, the more you will pray. Prayer is basically you relishing in the presence of the one who could condemn you but doesn't. Who could destroy you but is safe. Who could reject you but accepts you like no one is ever able to accept you. Prayer is not fundamentally asking God for things. Prayer is not fundamentally trying to get primarily just forgiveness. Prayer, its ultimate goal, its ultimate destination is for you to just delight in the presence of God, his healing presence, his loving presence. A presence that says, even though this world hates you, even though sometimes you hate yourself, prayer that is informed by the gospel says, God, you're with me right now in this moment of prayer. And you delight in me. And you accept me. Even when I wish I could get away from myself, you're with me now. Even when I'm hidden away in a closet somewhere. Because the world could not stand to look at me. You're with me here right now. That is how prayer becomes healing. That's how the presence of God through prayer starts to heal you. Prayer is simply standing in the presence of God. Knowing that he is not going anywhere. And therefore, you don't have to go anywhere either. You can just stay in that moment with him, communing with him through prayer. So you see, the healing power of prayer doesn't come from prayer itself. It comes from a proper understanding of the gospel. Prayer is a barometer that measures your confidence in God's love for you in the gospel. And so, NCF, let me ask you this question. How's your prayer life? Are you praying? Now, chances are you're probably feeling all guilty now, like, oh, you know, I don't pray, right? If that's where you're at, my reaction is, you bad people, you know, you not gnomes, how dare you pray, you know? Go to early morning prayer. Force yourself to pray. No. My response is, relish yourself or let God relish in you in the gospel. Be reminded that in spite of what the world says about you as you attempt to imitate Jesus, right, to where you internalize it and you think, maybe, God, you don't love me, go back to the gospel and see how much he really does delight in you. And I guarantee you, prayer will not be a chore. It will not be a burden. It will not be a delight. You know what it will be? 
It'll be kind of like when growing up as a kid, everyone said you sucked at school. Your teacher said you were going to amount for nothing. Then you come home and your mom just loves you, bakes you your favorite food and says, you're going to be fine. Right? Or it's kind of like when you had a hard day at the office or your boss is hacking at you and you come home and your husband or your wife, you know, says, I love you. You're the best thing that ever happened to me. Everything is going to be fine. It's kind of like when you have a hard day, right, because you've messed up at work and you come home and your little child looks up to you and says, I love you, Daddy, right? Everything comes back to its proper perspective when you come back to the realignment of the gospel. The world does not tell you whether or not God loves you. God tells you whether or not he loves you, and he tells it to you most poignantly through his son, Jesus. When you get that, prayer, which is essentially spending time in the presence of God, will be your delight. So that's my charge to you. Prayerfulness enables you to be delighted in God so that when you go back out into the world, you're not going to be like, oh, I'm not going to be so serious anymore in my Christian faith. And you're like, no, God loves me. I know he does. So I'm going to still maintain this mission of being a blessing to the world in spite of how the world reacts. That is how prayer enables you to be a blessing. It strengthens you to keep going forward in spite of the world that says, you better stop. Do you guys get that? Let's pray. Father, help us now as we seek to be faithful to you in imitating you and living out your transforming power in this world to be like you, Jesus. And Father, we know as your son has told us, that we will suffer the same kind of rejection, same kind of persecution as we attempt to live out that blessing. But God, let us not buy into the false message the world will say to us that we are messed up people. Instead, help us to go back to Scripture that says, yes, even though we're messed up, maybe we're worse, it has been negated, it has been undermined by the work of the gospel. Help us to remember that so that we can spend time with you in prayer, be healed by you in prayer so that we can go back out into the world and maintain this mission of being a blessing to the world. May the world hate us all at once, God. But if you love us, if you sustain us, we are able to maintain this mission that this world desperately needs us to live out, even in spite of what it says. So God, give us this grace, give us this mercy, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.